Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Today on the show, we have multiple people with multiple talents who perform one person shows. Vicki Lawrence has her own show called Vicki Lawrence and Mama, a two woman show. Spoiler, they are actually the same one person. And we will have Karen Knotts, who performs a show called Tied Up in Knots, a tribute to her marvelous father, Don Knotts. And did you know our own Fritz Coleman will be staging his one-man show very soon in Los Angeles? We've got so much to tell you. Vicki and Karen will join us shortly. But first, Fritz, what have you been watching this week? I'm really excited to tell people about this. Yep. It's a show on Netflix called The Staircase. And there's also a dramatized version on HBO Max, which I have not seen. This is a documentary. The film started in 2004 and continued off and on for 15 years. It's the story of novelist Michael Peterson, who is a convicted murderer, convicted of murdering his wife, Kathleen Peterson. Filming starts right after his indictment and continues through his conviction. His eight years in prison on a life sentence, the dismissal of that verdict, and the order for a new trial or a plea bargain. It's 13 episodes, but I'm telling you, it is well worth binging. I don't know how they did it. But a French film crew under the direction of Jean-Xavier de Lestrade got complete access to this story from the Petersons' extended family with all their private family oh, gatherings, yeah. the uh, defense team, including meetings of the defense strategy meetings, mock trials, focus groups, all the way to all the activity in the courtroom. They even show the jury, interview the judge, prosecutors, and defense attorneys, and you really follow the minutia of this case from start to finish. They had to get the jury to sign off on this, the judge, and they all exposed their uh, participation in this. It was fascinating. A great look at how a murder defense strategy works, to how the children of a convicted murderer are able to stay by their father's side and believe in his innocence, even though the evidence points elsewhere. It really drills down to the forensic stuff too, like physical evidence and DNA. I am not a huge true crime fan, but this is actually more than that. It's a great look at the nuts and bolts of the criminal justice system and how it takes a wealthy person to be able to afford the strongest defense. He spent millions of dollars on his defense, and in the end, it didn't even work. It's a long series of 13 episodes, but fascinating. You know, it really, it was fascinating. I, we started watching it. My husband is a prosecutor, so I would freeze it and say, why is this happening? What does that mean? And, you know, he would explain things. But then he said he had trouble sleeping because he felt like it was his case. Yes. And he had to figure out how well, to Well, I'm anxious to hear Ronnie's opinion about it and how they got licensed to in, invade this process. I mean, I don't, I think the film crew was there. I don't know when it was released because it starts out in 2001 when the crime takes place. And this guy's such a narcissist. You could see him, like, lining up a film crew to follow him around like he just loves he, himself he thinks that he's the most compelling thing and can talk anybody into anything including his own family if that were true yeah if he sold the rights to his story he wouldn't have been uh broke at the end of the movie i don't, I don't think. think he sold it i think he paid them to follow him around oh, because man. he thought him, himself that interesting. it was interesting and but i was like close... i know the internet must be just completely on fire with opinions but did you notice fritz that he calls 911 and says my wife fell down the stairs how does he know she fell down the stairs? Yes, he finds her at the bottom of the stairs, but it does it does not look like a fall. It looks like a violent attack. So yeah. he calls 911, he's screaming, my wife fell down the stairs. To me, I think that's a red flag because if you found your wife anywhere in the house looking like she looked with blood everywhere, you'd be like, who attacked my wife? This is a, a 
as you said, a narcissist, a, a thoroughly self-obsessed man. Not, not one time did I believe his story because he never broke his emotional uh, level during the whole time. And the heartbreaking part of the story was him uh, expecting his daughters and his family to believe them, and they did to the very end. It broke my heart. But it was, it wasn't it interesting, though? I loved it. It was absolutely captivating. So now I'm going to look forward to watching, I think it's Colin, one of the Collins. The British Colin is probably, you know, with his North Carolina accent, which you do <laughs> more perfectly than people from North Carolina, but it's on HBO. HBO Max, and they yeah. say that's even better because they get more honest in there about their opinion of this guy. Okay, good, because it's hard to watch something from the defense perspective for that mm-hmm. long when you know that this guy did it. Yep. At least that's how I felt. So my pick this week is a podcast that I'm recommending. It's called Dead Eyes. Dead Eyes podcast with Connor Ratliff. Actor-comedian Connor Ratliff embarks upon a quest to solve a decades-old mystery which has haunted and shaped his trajectory. Why did Tom Hanks fire him from a small role in the 2001 HBO miniseries Band of Brothers? As Connor dives deeply into his own history, speaking with casting agents, managers, producers, directors, and fellow actors in search of an answer to this one specific question, what he finds is that most of us have experienced moments where somebody with respect and importance gave us negative feedback. What matters is not so much about what they said or how brutally we were dismissed and discouraged, but what we did to then pick up our broken pieces and move on. The business of acting is so deeply personal and specific that it offers a perfect lens through which we can examine our disappointments and recoveries. Through the consistent auditioning and rejection and admonishments and being cut out of things or fired from things or recast, actors are bombarded with negative feedback. Connor's case feels especially epic because he was specifically forsaken by an American treasure, Tom Hanks, who, legend has it, looked at Connor's performance and said, we need to recast him. He has dead eyes. Now, you may be thinking, hey, Tom Hanks, a lot of soldiers were walking through World War II with dead eyes. And how would Tom Hanks respond to your insight? Or more specifically, does Connor work his way through everyone loosely associated with the specter of this memory and make it all the way through to Mr. Tom Hanks. Does Tom Hanks save Private Ryan or Private Connor? Listen and learn. You will find Dead Eyes where you find your podcast. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, it's really good. I'm not even done with it. I'll maybe speak more about it once I get to the end where I think he, you know. It was guts on both of their parts. The guy who exposed that insecurity of himself and then Hanks coming on to defend himself. But I think it's like three years of this thing before Hanks hears about it and says, all right, And that's my Tom Hanks impression. Okay, so Fritz, tell us about your upcoming show at the Carolina. All right, just indulge me for a second. Yeah. I'm going to plug a show. I'm not doing this all the time. One of our great guests a few months ago was Mark Arthur Miller. He's a very talented soul, R&B, and jazz singer. He's got a fantastic album called Soul Searching. Well, I'm going to do a show with Mark at the iconic Los Angeles room, the Catalina Bar and Grill on Sunset Boulevard here in Los Angeles. I am stoked to open the show for him. It's Sunday, August 7th at 7.30. You'll see a link to the website. It's CatalinaJazzClub.com. There's information about the show, clips from Mark and I. More on this later, Sunday, August 7th, CatalinaJazzClub.com. It will be baby boomer nirvana. Trust me. Thank you for letting me talk about it. All right, Fritz. Well, American success story, Vicki Lawrence, was discovered when she was in high school by Carol Burnett herself. Carol's instincts were stellar. The kid has it. Vicky is an actress, comedian, and pop singer, best known perhaps as Mama, and for the voluminous character she created on her 11-year Carol Burnett show run. From there, Vicky has had a massive hit record and starred on stages and screens throughout our lives and our memories. Welcome, Vicky. Hi, you guys. I'm just writing down here. Yeah. 
need to watch the staircase. <laughs> Very it's good. Colin, I love Colin Firth. Yeah. Um, yes, Colin Firth. So I, my first question, I'm certain that this is in your, this is number one on your FAQs. But tell us about the day that Carol Burnett showed up at the Miss Fireball contest in Inglewood, California. <laughs> well, I, yes, I was a, a senior in high school. And I entered a local contest called Miss Fireball, which was the fireman's ball was coming up and they wanted some girls to sing and dance. So they said, we'll call it a contest. And uh, so they got a bunch of us local gals and yeah, we were all excited to be Miss Fireball. We did two can-can numbers together and we each did an individual talent. I played the guitar. I sang, won't you come home, Bill Bailey? And I played a kazoo. <laughs> You've got my vote. Before the contest, the local newspaper gal wrote, you know, about the, about the whole thing coming up, and she ran a picture of all the girls, and she said that I uh, bore a striking resemblance to a young Carol Burnett, at which point my mom said, you need to write a fan letter to Carol, and I was a big fan letter writer when I was a kid. I wrote to, uh, my walls were covered with, but mostly guys that were on TV yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Like, who was I on, I want to know who was on your wall, now that we're stopping right here. Fabian, sure. Johnny Cross, Malata. <laughs> Um, uh, what's his name from uh, the Donna Reed show? Uh, Paul Peterson. Paul Peterson, yes. Rush on him. Uh, ha who are the monkeys? All the monkeys. Um, I don't, everybody that you can think of. Bobby Rydell, Bobby V. Uh, you know, s singers, actors, mm -hmm. but not a lot of women. <laughs> anyway, I wrote her a fan letter. I said, yeah, everybody says I look like you. I enclosed this article with the picture. And uh, the letter just happened to land on her desk prior to that contest. And uh, for some odd reason, uh, I mean, I, it was just very uh, serendipitous. She took, my, she took my dad's name out of the article. She looked us up in the phone book. She called me. She said, I want to come and see this contest. Uh, and I, I, I thought she was nuts. I, <laughs> when does something like that happen? Anyway, she came to Hollywood Park. You guys will remember Hollywood Park. People don't remember it anymore because now it's the SoFi Stadium, mm -hmm. you know. But back in the day, it was the racetrack. That's actually where I learned to drive, at, in the parking lot at Hollywood Park. <laughs> um, she said, I want to come down and see the contest at the racetrack. And her husband said, what the hell is she, a jockey? Have a hunch. Here we go. So, you know, she came down, watched the contest. It just so happened that she had just moved out from New York and they were just right in the throes of putting together the Carol Burnett show. And she thought, wouldn't it be a novelty to have a kid that looks like me? Uh, so that, I mean, what are the odds? That was, that was November of my senior year. Uh, by January, I've still not heard from her. She's, she crowned me the winner, took a picture with me and the mayor and, you know, the head of the firehouse and Carol, and she's, you know, 14 months pregnant and uh, didn't hear from her in January. So um, uh, I come home from school one afternoon. My mom says they announced on the phone, on the uh, radio, that Carol is at St. John's. She had the baby. So I was on my way to do a recording session with the Young Americans, which I, I used to sing with the Young Americans uh, when I was young. And um, we were on our way to the session. I said to the guy I was ride sharing with, I said, let's stop at the hospital. I'm going to run in and see her. Aww. And he said, run in and see Carol Burnett. And I said, well, I'm going to try. So we go to St. John's. 
I'm like third floor maternity up the elevator. There's two nurses sitting there. They're not doing anything, twiddling their thumbs. I said, <laughs> I'm here. Hi, you guys. I'm here to see uh, Mrs. Hamilton. And they took one look at me and said, oh, well, you must be your sister, Chrissy. Wait till you see her. Wait till you see me. <laughs> That's brilliant. Nowadays, I would be arrested for being a stalker, of course. But back in the day, and she was sweet as she could be. And she said, I haven't forgotten you. And several months later, they called me down to CBS and said, would I audition to play her sister on this show we're putting together? Had you graduated from high school when you started the whole thing? You were 17 years old. I, gra- I saw a visitor in the hospital and I think it was January or February. I graduated in June. I started at UCLA because that was my dad's alma mater and his dream that I would go to UCLA. I started there and on the Burnett show the same fall. And that's wow. where that's where Carol went. So it was yeah. it must have been just that, you know, you were really good. So it's not just that you looked like her, but once you started and once people started working with you, it was like this kid is awesome. She can do it all. I, I'll tell you what, Louise. A lot of people had to work with me because I was not really good. <laughs> but it was really interesting casting. You started playing Carol's younger sister, and you ended up playing her mother. Thelma Harper. That probably hasn't happened in show business. That's the whole before. family tree right there. No, I was terrible. Carol said the suits came down and said, could we replace her with an actor, actress? Because she's kind of rough. And Carol said, I told them she is a diamond in the rough. She, I mean, this wouldn't happen nowadays. Nowadays, you know, the judges would vote you off or if they didn't, tours <laughs> would vote you off, you know? So I really feel like I got to grow up in front of America. Consequently, many of my fans are... They just feel like we grew up together. We did. Yeah, no, we, a- you absolutely have grown up with all of us. There's no question that we all feel like you're our big sister or our little sister. No question about that. Because you yeah. just have those endearing qualities. And uh, yes, maybe people had to work with you, but you had the stuff there to, you know, great clay. You know, you are great clay and you went, you kind of probably have a personality to where people enjoyed teaching you. Well, I was very quiet. People, I mean, they would tell you, I didn't say two words. I was sort of scared of my shadow. Uh, very shy. But yeah, it was, I learned, you, it's hard not to learn from those people if just by osmosis, just watching. And, you know, I, I, and I've said it. I feel like I went to the Harvard School of Comedy in front of America. Now, how many of those boys on your wall did you get to meet? Bobby Sherman. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the show, Louise? Forgot. Oh, here say. come the brides, of course. Oh, here come the brides. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How could I? Yes, I did get to meet Bobby Sherman. I think that's probably about it. All right. Well, we so can... how far into the show did you go from the younger sister to the mother role? And uh, and explain who Thelma is. Mama happened about the fifth season. I was twenty four. And two of our writers wrote this. Uh, they both came from dysfunctional upbringings. So they were <laughs> beautiful homage to their horrible mothers. And they wrote Mama for Carol. And Carol didn't want to play the part. She said, it doesn't speak to me. The part that speaks to Eunice. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they were very upset. And uh, then she went to Bob Mackey. She said, don't you think we could make Mickey Mama? Don't you think we could? And he said, yeah, we could. Because by then he had made me many old ladies. You know, I... It's like if Carol was Shirley Temple, I was the mean old school teacher. And if Carol was the Cinderella, I was the Wicked Witch. That's just kind of the way it went. 
So uh, mama was, you know, nothing new, another old lady to play. I feel like I kind of drew on a Southern mother-in-law that I had for a nanosecond. (laughs) (laughs) And um, a little bit, my grandma, my grandma and I sort of looked separated at birth. She never got, she never lived to see it. I'm sorry. But if you look at the pictures side by side, it's frightening. Mama is an emotionally abusive mother who is illustrating the systemic intergenerational trauma of family dysfunction. But the sketches and the show use humor to pull us in and force us to really look at it and see how cruelty breeds cruelty. And I, I'm wondering what people have said to you over the years, because there's something very real in it. Well, I think the sketches on the Burnett show were very, very real. Uh, they were almost little dramatic pieces, a lot of them. They were little tearjerkers. You said uh, she would say the wrong thing at the wrong time, but always get to the truth, which is a great description. But she was cruel, mm-hmm. Fritz. That's the thing. That's mm-hmm. why Eunice is Eunice, because she was just awful. Well, I think Eunice had absolutely no self-esteem whatsoever. <laughs> so Mama knew that, and she just beat the crap out of her and just killed <laughs> And um, and she was mean on the Burnett show. And so when, when it went to series, all of a sudden it was like, I can't be this mean old lady. Yeah. We did two shows. We went to a series without a pilot. Joe sold the series on the golf course to Grant Tinker, who was the head of NBC at the time, without a pilot. So we went to series not really knowing who we were. And uh, it was up to the writers to figure that out on the fly. And we did two shows. And I said, these are not funny. And I, we shut down. I said, I need Harvey to come in. I can't because Harvey was such a mentor to me. Uh, and I sat down with him. I said, Harvey, what the hell? And he said, well, she's got to now be a sitcom star. You, people aren't going to come home after a hard day at the office, pop a beer and watch this lady scream at everybody for a half an hour. Mm-hmm. You now become a sitcom star. So how did they you make have- her more three-dimensional? You have to laugh. You have to smile. I said, she's never even smiled. How's she going to laugh? <laughs> you are she. Any character that you that that you do that well is a part of you, which is <laughs> scares the hell out of my husband. But uh, <laughs> he was, I mean, he was responsible for turning her loose, turning her into the silly little peacock that she became. And there really wasn't anything she couldn't do on on Mama's family. She did everything from dirty dancing to running for mayor. Thelma's life philosophy is that most people think we're going to hell in a handbasket, but Thelma believes we're already there. I love that. (laughs) That was a quote. You know, what's fun about my show, when I put it together, I said, I really don't want this to be retrospective. I want to really push mama into the modern world. I want to push her into the new century and let her deal with all the stuff that's going on in the world. And God knows you have more material than you can deal with nowadays. Um, you know, the world's just gone nuts. So Mama has a lot to say. And well, it's- was it kind of an appeal like the Carol O'Connor appeal in his show where uh, you had the guts to speak what many people were feeling but didn't have the guts to speak as Carol did on his show? And it resonated. I remember my my grandmother used to watch On the Family and she she didn't even get the humor of it. She just believed in his political philosophy and it resonated with him that way. It was so funny. Anyway. Yeah, I've, I've, of, I've often equated Mama to Carol O'Connor. I think everybody knows somebody like that. Mm-hmm. 
we all know an Archie Bunker. We all know a Thelma Harper. She's at your Thanksgiving table and she says the most adorable things. And, you know, when you're doing the dishes with your sister, you're laughing about it. Can you believe she said that? But I think everybody knows her. And that's what I hear from my fans. You're my aunt. You're my mother. You're my grandma. What does mama keep in her purse? Oh, not much. <laughs> She's probably got some mace and uh, some tums. <laughs> some tums. Maybe a, maybe a roll of toilet paper that she stole. Uh, well, you, you, know. you have admitted uh, and are quite proud of the fact that uh, this character, Mama, is big in the LGBTQ community. Why, why do you think that is? Well, she's pretty fun. You just mm-hmm. dress up. And you hide behind all that silly costume and you can say whatever the hell you want. You mm-hmm. get away with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. it's freeing. And also someone gives you a chair. You know, <laughs> you don't have to wait in lines. And if they don't, you just smack them with your purse. <laughs> That's right. But a guy that wrote a review of your show in San Francisco said she's like the perfect drag queen. All the attributes, feisty and campy and flamboyant. And it harkens back to like vaudeville days. And it just resonated with them. Yeah. And they all wanted to be you. And you made a great comment. You said, uh, Mama would make a great drag queen because it's an easy outfit to put together. It is. And I still... I get the pictures every year at Halloween of people that have dressed up as mama from kids to grown men of course somewhere down south I can't remember where and I got the I was charged by a six foot five unit <laughs> whoa uh, and down the aisle and charged the stage and I'll tell you what he was quite something <laughs> substantial any injuries well no security stopped him but <laughs> We just, uh, we nearly peed in our pants. I think we probably half of us did. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so here's a challenge for you. Pretend it's not a song, but a newspaper article, and give us the who, what, where, when, how, why of the night the lights went out in Georgia. You know, I'm still not sure. I was um, amazed when they did a movie of that, because I said, I cannot wait to see how it ends. (laughs) Uh, But I think... uh, the sister did it, right? Me, the girl did it. The sister. Yeah, I always felt the the person singing did the crime because crime. Uh, because of the line that says, uh, uh, "How does it go?" An innocent man. You're asking me how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that the the, the title, the, "The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia," is a great metaphor for exactly what's going on down there right now. Oh yes. But it's the night they hung an innocent man, so I think the person singing is the one who did it, right? Yeah, and she knows that they, they're blaming the wrong person. Right. Yeah. But I think yes. they, the night the lights went out in Texas should be the sequel because of the grid down there. Oh, Lord. Poor Texas. <laughs> Which I'm, I'm not sure we shouldn't just kind of just cut off Texas and Florida, let them float on off Seriously. Well, you know. Well, Mama's family was syndicated for five years. And can yes. still be seen on all these various uh, nostalgia platforms now, which is unbelievable. Yeah, thank you, God. You, 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 so yes, a- absolutely. I've not gotten fan mail as I did during the pandemic ever in my career. Oh my goodness! That's so interesting. Oh. Just one silly laugh. Maybe. You've got two books. You've got your autobiography, Vicky: The True Life Adventures of Miss Firecracker, and Mama for President. Good Lord, why not? Yes. <laughs> Which I think they should reissue and say, Vicky, Mama for president, I told you so. 
That's awesome. All right. So what went on with Dick Clark? I know you love game shows and you're very good at them, but there's something about verbally sparring with Dick Clark where you walk out or, you know, was he difficult? Oh, my God. I loved him. We loved to just tease each other. Okay. We loved it. Yeah. I miss- yeah, you did your own talk show. You did win, lose, or draw, and you had your own talk show for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she did. Mm-hmm. But in your book, you talk about being a woman in a man's world and abuse that you have faced on the set. Do you have anything that you can teach us? That I can teach you just just that things are getting better. I think there a lot of times we think we're not moving. I don't know what we're doing now. I think we're kind of doing a lateral. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> Um, but your story is interesting because this is pre Me Too. You had the, you were abused by a coworker, but what happened was you ended up getting fired, and the coworker, the perpetrator, stayed employed, which probably wouldn't happen now. I don't think. Well, because that was the '90s, it was still very much a man's world. Now I think somebody would listen to me, mm-hmm. uh, but back in the day, uh, they didn't. They didn't. You were the woman, and you were the which is. This is interesting, you guys. What do you think about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard? I'm very torn. I feel like because she's a woman, people may just tend not to believe her at all. And that's probably a terrible thing to say. Well, her Achilles heel is she's a bad actor. So she's not delivering this material well, facing the jury. Any coach would say, please don't face the jury. It looks too forward. But anyway. Oh, is that what But I'll tell saying? you, I think there are, I think you're absolutely right, Vicky. I, I think there's a, a the side of his life that might have to be addressed later is the abusive side. It's obvious the truth is he was very abusive to his spouses and girls. That's an issue that you know doesn't really have anything to do with a lawsuit. But uh, it's it, but he seems to be winning this public relations battle. Yeah. It's, it'll be interesting. Now, I would love to hear your thoughts because I have not been following the trial. So please tell me what's been happening and tell me your thoughts. I haven't much either, but I do. And I just can't believe that they wanted cameras in that courtroom or that, yeah. that, that can't believe that many people are watching all this dirty laundry. But um, I do just kind of feel that people still have a tendency to not believe women. Yeah. Yeah, that is yeah, they'll let the cameras in the courtroom for the uh, Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial, but not the Supreme Court. There's something wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, there is something wrong with that. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. What now, a world. you have an event coming up that you want to tell everybody about. Right, Vicki? Oh, you're talking about the Agua Caliente? Yes. Yes. Well, it's my first show in quite a while, and so I'm very excited. I'm happy to be with peeps out here in California. Always great audiences. Agua Caliente is a beautiful spot. It's a beautiful venue. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it uh, this Saturday night at um, 8 o'clock. And where do people go if they would like to purchase tickets? Can they just show up or should they get them in advance? I think uh, I don't actually know what they're doing. I, I know you can get them in advance. Uh, I don't know if this is on uh, reserve tickets. Go to their website. It's called Vicki Lawrence and Mama, a two-woman show. And, and there are clips on YouTube, great clips of you having a dialogue with yourself. Yeah, you interview is that, is that what the show is about? Sort of, is that the flavor of the show? Well, you know, when I put the show together, I knew everybody would want to see Mama because they love her so much. But I still think I'm kind of funny. So my... <laughs> 
my half of the show is sort of largely autobiographical because a lot of the stuff that happened to me just doesn't happen anymore. And people love hearing all those good old stories. So it's, you know, how Carol found me, how I became a redhead, how I met my husband. How did mama happen? How did you have a hit record? One hit record and no more. Um, so it's all those fun stories. And uh, and then uh, we run some outtakes from Mama's family and uh, Mama gets to come out. And Mama's sort of my chance to, as I said, riff on everything that is driving all of us crazy in the world. Now, when Mama comes out, does she disagree with everything that Vicky has just said? Well, she just can't really much be bothered with Vicky. <laughs> you, you brought up your marriage. You've been married to Al Schultz for 44 years. He was a wow. Yeah, when you hear that year. number, he's, he's a professional makeup artist, and, and people often ask you for beauty tips, and you say, I just sleep with my makeup artist. Right. <laughs> Al, Al produces your one woman show, and your son directs. That's exciting. Well, all right, yeah, he took over for uh, Al a few years ago and uh, started directing the show, and he's wonderful. He's, it's so nice to go on the road with uh, family. If you, you know, if you can work with your family, there's nothing better. If Gary, you can't, nothing worse. But Ga if you, Gary you, Marshall used to say the way to stay safe in show business is to only hire your family. Yeah, oh yeah. Can <laughs> I'm not related to anyone in this room here with me, so I'm, I may be in trouble. But I, I think we have to hear a Tim Conway story. Tim Conway story. Well, let's see where to begin. Um Let's see, a good Tim Conway story. Well, we went down in 1972 to open the Sydney Opera House. I know the Queen thinks she opened it, but I believe <laughs> the show was the very first show in there. So we flew all the way down there. And if you've done it, you know it's a, I mean, I don't know how it is now, but I mean, we stopped in Hawaii, we stopped in Fiji uh it was a long long trip and Qantas would give you those what's my line sleep masks you know <laughs> so you could even drool in privacy so <laughs> we finally do Australia and it's been a long trip god knows not a peep out of anybody I don't think and as we hit the runway this is 1972 mind you uh, we hit the runway. Here comes Tim down the first class aisle. You know, he was a gymnast in college. So here he comes and he's rolling down like somersaulting down the first class aisle. And he's careening into the right seat going, ow, and careening into the left side. <laughs> oh, my God. Ow, and he's all the way down the aisle. The little flight attendants are in their jump seats going, oh, my God. <laughs> He gets to the front of the cabin. The plane screeches to a halt. He slams against the pilot's door. He stands up, turns around, faces as all. He's got his sleep mask on like a bra. Oh, my and he, God. He looks at everybody as we screech to a halt. He says, wow, rough landing, and walks back to his seat. <laughs> <laughs> Working with Harvey and Tim must have just been a show within a show for other people that work there. It was. We had a, a, a pool, actually, back in the green room. How many seconds into the sketch will Harvey lose it? And, I mean, you could win big bucks with 13 seconds, you know? You never knew. You just never knew, but you knew it was going to happen. Because so Harvey was, uh, well, Tim used to say he had custody of Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably correct. But, you know, you that must be the second number two on the, on your FAQs is, is how often did you lose it or how difficult was it not to lose it 
You know, I really didn't too much, Louise, because I didn't really, it was a lot of years before I felt that I had earned, earned the right to sort of play in the sandbox with all these grown-ups. I mean, these wow. were like the best comedians in the world, and I just didn't feel like it was my place to be a little upstart. That's so interesting. Or, or to be breaking up. So you don't see a lot of that from me until Mama comes along. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think you were probably hyper-focused. Therefore, you didn't have the impulse to laugh because you were so focused on the task at hand. Yeah, that and just, I think, out of respect for the people that I was learning from. I mean, it was a very special place to learn everything that I learned. And I look back at that time in our history, which was a lot of hippies, a lot of drugs, a lot of... I was raised in this lovely, nurturing, beautiful, perfect environment. You come from Hollywood royalty. Your father worked for Max Factor, right, for years and years. Am I right about that? He, he did, yeah. Well, and Max yeah. Factor, for, for people who weren't born in this century, was one of the the, the powerhouses of uh, makeup and uh, beauty in Hollywood for many, many years. Yes. My science projects in high school are always how is, uh, how is nail polish made and <laughs> why is lipstick shiny and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, and the teacher would go, here comes Vicky again. Right <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's adorable. Um, all right. What else? Is there anything? Any of no, the- is, I, I just want to ask one more question about your show. Is this the start of a tour for you? Are you going to, uh, you said you hadn't performed much during the pandemic. This was a, an opening night post-pandemic. Are you going to have a tour? Well, you know, for me, the perfect work schedule is probably uh, two weekends a month, maybe a couple of shows. Mm-hmm. And that's for me so i don't i don't think you call that a tour really (laughs) but i mean i've been doing this for a lot of years now so is everyone in the audience going to be masked or they have to show a card that says they they've tested that day or how do you how are you going to keep people safe i don't know that i do not know the answer to that i don't know what is there at uh, the agua caliente is mama going to have an opinion about masks you know, I did for a little bit when I first started working after the shutdown. Uh, she came out in full gear with that shield on and the whole nine oh, yards. That's and funny. Sprayed the whole audience down because, good <laughs> Lord, you people have. Uh, but then I decided I'm not sure I want to remind anybody of this at all. I think maybe let's just laugh. So. I don't know. We'll see. Well, We'll thank you for uh, many years of great laughter. I mean, some of the greatest uh, moments on television, Carol Burnett and otherwise, have been involving you. And so we were so happy to have a chance to talk with you today. And tell people what else you'd like them to know. You have your website. Where else can people follow you on social media? What should people know? Oh, well, I do a lot of Instagram. I'm not big on Twitter. You know, I feel like everybody gets in trouble on Twitter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of steer clear, so right. but I do love Instagram because I and Joni got me started on the Instagram threads because she said, "Come on, let's get with it. It's time to get with the social media thing." So she made me do it. All right. And what's your handle yeah. on Instagram so we can find you there? Oh, it's Vicky Lawrence official. Ooh, okay, that's really good. Well, break a leg this week, and uh, I'm sure you're going to m- m- entertain them and blow the roof off the place. Have fun. I'm going to try. It'll be nice to laugh. It will be wonderful. Yeah. It'll be explosive. You'll see. So enjoy. Yeah. Great to Thank talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sure. Good to see you. Bye. Good to okay. see you. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Bye-bye. And look who's here. Here comes your introduction, Karen Knotts. Are you ready? Karen Knotts is an actress and stand-up comedian whose one-woman show, Tied Up in Knotts, pays highly entertaining tribute to her dad, Don Knotts, while filling us in on the realities of growing up with such a famously amusing father. Welcome, Karen. Hi. Hey, Karen. Now, your dad did not want you to go into show business, but how was he supposed to make what he did seem unfun to you? <laughs> exactly. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, he was just always cutting up, but he changed his mind. I mean, he a lot of people don't know this, but my dad had his own variety show in 1971. And by that time, I was 16. And so my dad at the time was dating um, a very beautiful actress named Elaine Joyce, and she was his co-star on the on the uh, variety show. And she's sort of convincing him, you know, you should let uh, Karen give her, give her a chance, you know? And so he decided to let me um, be on his variety show. And the sketch that the writers came up with was based on reality, where I was telling, I was gonna do this monologue and my dad was telling the audience, uh, you know, uh, this is her chance, but she's, yeah, this, this is not going to work out. So then I go and I do this great dramatic monologue and I got the applause and it was really sweet. It was like, you know, a, a little, it was sort of like a little Christmas moment in a way. It was really wonderful. I, I, I loved your father. I, I always related to him because his nervous out of place physicality is exactly how I felt inside. To me, he was like Woody Allen, or Woody Allen was like Don Knotts on Prozac. <laughs> it, it, you know, it was a more intellectual disturbance going on. But I, I just loved him from the Steve Allen show. Um, you, you describe your relationship with him and tied up in knots. Tell us about your book a little bit. Well, the book, it came out um, just September 21st of this year. And it was, or I'm sorry, 2021. Um, and the book was, it took me a long time to write the book. And everybody kept saying, you should write a book about your dad. And I would say, no, I'm an actor, not an author. <laughs> but um, I changed my mind at some point because um, I realized that the, the people who all knew my dad were starting to pass away and that I didn't have much time left. If I was going to do it, I had to do it now. Mm -hmm. And I started doing it. I started making interviews with people. And this was about 10 years ago. I went to his hometown of Morgantown, West Virginia. And I put the word out on radio that I was looking for people who knew him. Who, And so I got about 30 people show up and they had great stories. Mostly they were stories about their parents or their aunts and uncles. Or, you know, these were the, my generation of people who had these great stories about my father and I started to get a picture of what my dad's life was like as a young man, you know, as a teenager. I went to his high school. We always talked about high school being his turning point where he really came into his own and what a fun time he had because he had a rather a very, very difficult childhood. And then but in high school, it all just sort of went away and he became who he was meant to be. Right. And you gave yourself this opportunity through this project to truly explore your father's childhood by you know with all the people because in morgantown that that's now the stuff of legend so people have their stories <laughs> and they've passed them on to generations and you got to go down there and really investigate and see where he carved his name into the wall in the gymnasium right. and like really get closer to your dad through that whole process yeah that's right and there were just wonderful stories like one man talked about um 
how uh, after the war, you know, and my father came um, back to the high school or was performing. No, it was a little a little space in the university, West Virginia University, in the performance space. And he said, here comes a skinny young guy after, you know, after the guitar solo or whatever it was. Here comes a skinny young guy and he, he puts a uh, he puts a microphone up and he starts making a sound like he's in a movie theater and he starts making a sound like it. He's unwrapping a candy bar, making noises, disturbing the people around him. And he, all of these things he was doing with his face were absolutely hysterical. And then he sits down and he pretends like somebody cut, let loose some gas nearby. So he's making these faces and he said, the audience was just in stitches. Well, he had this this talent and he must have known even as a little kid because he would act out a whole baseball game, right? And he yeah. must have seen the reaction in people and know that, all right, I think I might be good at this kind of thing. Well, he, um, his older brother, Shadow, was the comedian of the family. And, you know, he had three much older brothers. And they had this father who was a, a mental case, a really sad, paranoid, schizophrenic mental case. Mm -hmm. And so they were always looking for humor to escape them from the tragedy of that and from their, their very, very impoverished situation. And they lived in a, you know, in a house and his mother ran this boarding house. And so Shadow was the nickname of this older brother because he was so skinny he didn't have one. Mm -hmm. And um, Shadow was the cut up until my dad was trying to learn from Shadow, because even though my dad had this incredibly natural comedic talent, he, he what I feel like he wasn't in control of it. Ah. He was getting mm. laughs and people were laughing at him, Okay, you know, because they could provoke him into being angry or frustrated or whatever and, or terrified. And so they were laughing at him, not with him. Mm -hmm. So through Shadow, he had to learn how to turn that around and make him make very him in control of the laughs. Wow. Well, uh, I, I think in the top five television shows in the pantheon of television, the Andy Griffith Show is one of the top two. Lucia Ball and the Andy Griffith Show. And as I was explaining to you offline, my good friend Bruce Bilson started his television directing career as an AD on the Andy Griffith Show. And I would ride bikes with him until he was 90 years old. And he had the best anecdotes about, first of all, how much he loved doing that show. But I don't think America understands the impact it had. And I want you to talk about your experience in what are called Mount Airy days. For years, people sort of go on this exodus to North Carolina. Yeah. to Mount Airy Days, which celebrates the Andy Griffith phenomenon. There are parades and lectures and all kinds of activities, and they do it every year. Tell us about that. Well, it's actually known as Mayberry Days. Mayberry Days. It takes place in Mount Airy, I though, which, is, which was Andy Griffith's hometown. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of Mayberry was, was um, taken off of that town. You know, all the little places, Snappy Lunch and Floyd's Barbershop, they were named after those places there. And so a woman named Tanya Jones started this festival in the 90s and it started small and it has grown to this unbelievable number like 50,000 people showed up there one year when they had their 10 year anniversary <laughs> literally 50,000 people i mean i think it's you know when people keep on watching the show because it's so rare and such an unusual show that you can't find anything like it on TV now. There's such humanity in it. I think it's probably more important to the American psyche now than it was when it was originally broadcast. I think so, too, because now the show's focus on it's they don't have that home 
quality, that mm-hmm. that that earthiness, that val- values that the show had. And that's the reason why it's lived on so long. And so you you would go down and sign autographs and answer people's questions and talk about because the, the fans are rabid. They know the minutia of your dad's life and everything. Yeah, they know more about the show than I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but I have my own show that I do, Tied Up in Knots, as you mentioned. And I also do other different kinds of shows. And then they have the Colonel Tim's, which is named after, you know, that thing on the show where they had that, um, the amateur contest. And they have the Colonel Tim's. And so all the performers, there are many of us that perform at Mayberry Days. We get out there and we do sketches and we do, you know, whatever funny little talent that we want to display and the audience is just crazy about that show well i think what happens is that you know as we move through time we see the importance of a show based on how it's making us feel at the when it's first airing it's like oh is it funny blah blah as time goes on it's really about how it makes you feel and yeah. so that, yeah, it re- feels safe now yeah which is- so the reason that me tv <clears throat> just shows it back to back to back all afternoon is that if you just turn it on, if you're having a stressful moment and you turn it on, it just makes you feel calm. I yeah, think. there are people that watch it all day long, yeah. literally. They well, watch it all day or every day, every night when they're sleeping. It's, it's such comfort. Mm-hmm. Comfort, that's a good word, yeah. It was, uh, you know, he, he was an interesting, interesting character. Well, you're, you're very talented. You have a one-person show and you got to perform that show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, a very prestigious art festival in Scotland. Stand-ups perform there. It's like, you know, next to the Montreal Comedy Festival, it's the place you want to have your talent shown. Talk about that experience. Oh, gosh. that's I'm so glad you brought that up. Nobody's ever mentioned that before. But that was actually at the very beginning of my, of my development of that show. And uh, I, I was very nervous because I didn't, I, I just didn't have confidence in the show at that point. And so some woman, um, Inez was her name, she said, you need to go to Edinburgh and I want to produce your show. And I said, oh, okay. So, but what happened was when I went over there to Scotland, you know, nobody over there no, knew who Don Knotts was. Oh, wow. <laughs> and in fact, I heard people talking out in the lobby, this is a show about donuts. <laughs> oh, I, I, I didn't I didn't ask that question, even understanding that it might have been a dark experience for you. That's like a bucket list performance for most comedians. So it was not not what you wanted it to be. Well, no, it's fine that you asked because it was actually was a great experience for me because what happened was it, it forced me to find out whether the show could stand on its own mm. without people just being such fans of Don Knotts. Mm-hmm. And so it gave me the confidence of that. I had, you know, I had a lot of other material in the show. I have characters in the show. I have bits. I did a little magic and I still do a little magic in my show. And I found that people were still interested in the stories. So that was a great character builder for me. Oh, yeah. That's just does does the story stand alone. I love that. So um, you got to interview a lot of famous folks who were touched and influenced by your father's work in, in making in making your book. And, and maybe even talk about it in, in your one-woman show. Talk about who you interviewed and uh, who availed themselves to you to tell oh, okay. what Don Knotts meant to them. Okay, well, Cat um, Williams, who is a black stand-up comedian, one of my favorites, mm-hmm. he's um, he's a huge Don Knotts fan. I got to talk to him. Jim Carrey is a tremendous uh, oh, yeah. Don Knotts fan. And when Jim um, got on the phone with me, 
he was so excited to talk about my dad that he would not stop talking. <laughs> and I had these questions that I needed to get answers from him. And I finally said, can I ask a question? <laughs> yeah, he and does your my, dad really well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he does. And yeah, there's a story about him in the, where um, uh, Ron Howard was directing Jim and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And Jim had to wear uh, this makeup he was in the makeup chair for four hours as the Grinch, and he was getting very depressed because of that. So Ron called dad and asked, would you come down to the set and cheer up Jim? You know, so Jim's up there on the top of Grinch Mountain. He looks down and sees my dad standing there oh. and he launches into this full on impression of Barney Fife while wearing the Grinch costume. That's hysterical. <laughs> and Ron said later, if only I had kept the camera rolling. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. But talk about the time on you're the same age as as Ron Howard. And I mm -hmm. love how you kind of bravely initiated a conversation with a, 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 a 10 year old boy during that awkward time of our childhoods where girls don't really talk to boys. and Boys don't really talk to girls. But you made it happen. Tell that story. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I, I just remember that he was holding this little gadget in his hand and it was a, a little tiny for, for that day, a tiny transistor radio was gold. And in those days, we just had clock radios. Yeah. I didn't remember, you know, maybe there were transistors, but if they were, they were big. And he was holding this, his hand, and I was fascinated. I said, what's that? And he told me what it was, and he was showing me and talking about that. And I thought, wow, this kid is not like any other kid. <laughs> he's serious, you know? Yeah. And he, he's, he had this gravitas about him, even though he was a kid my same age. Wow. And then, but then he walked around and he showed me some things on the set. That one big thing about that uh, behind the scenes of the Andy Griffith show was there are a lot of pranks being played all the time. It was kind of the, all these these people came up from an era where practical jokes were popular because of the depression, mm. and they had to you know they played jokes on each other as a way to relieve the tension and the and the fears that they had, and so that stayed up with them. And so they played a lot of pra pranks on each other. So they had a great relationship. He had a great relationship with with Andy. Was there was that true to people's perception? It seems so fatherly, and it was a perfect relationship between father and son, which was the most touching part of the show. I think that was probably true. I, I can't validate that, but I, mm -hmm. I have a feeling that it was true because I've seen pictures of them backstage, you know, off camera, and it looked like they still had that that warmth between them. I love when you were talking about No Time for Sergeant. And I, I think it's a really important story because your your dad kind of made this role happen for himself by being aware of what was going on and then placing a call to Andy and saying, hey, is there a part for me in this? And I think that's that's really good advice for people just yeah. making their way in any career is to sort of that's take right. advantage of relationships that are intact and then finding out maybe you can do it through LinkedIn or other ways that people find out someone's starting something. You know what? Email, make a call because look at look at the trajectory of Don Knotts's life based on that call he plays to Andy Griffith. Tell that story. Well, um, after No Time for Sergeants, they went their separate ways. My dad stayed in New York and did, as you mentioned, Fritz the Nervous Guy, and and that's where the beginning of his fame started. Was on that uh, the Tonight Show with Steve Allen was like the first one of the early incarnations of you know the sketch comedy phenomenon. And so he had this nervous guy character, but Andy had been offered to do the role uh, in A Face in the Crowd. So Andy went to Los Angeles 
And they lost touch for a while. And then the Steve Allen show moved out to Los Angeles along with a lot of the other shows of the era. Um, there was a big exodus from New York to LA. And so then um, at, after a while, the Steve Allen show ended and my dad was over at Pat Harrington Jr.'s house who had been regular on the Steve Allen show with dad and they were out of work now. So they were flipping around the channels and they ended up watching the Danny Thomas show. Well, all of a sudden, Andy Griffith appears on the Danny Thomas show wearing the sheriff's outfit. And, um, and, and Pat went, oh, oh, I read about this. Andy got a pilot and as a small town sheriff. And so they decided to try this out on the, on the Danny Thomas show, see what people's reactions would be. And my dad was like, Andy is a pilot. Oh my gosh. So he got him on the phone and immediately said, do you think Sheriff Taylor ought to have a deputy? That's great. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah. Such an important question. Look what it leads to. <laughs> well, and Andy thought that dad was still on the Steve Allen show. At the time, that's why yeah. he didn't even think of it. That's why I just I just want to say it's always okay to reach out. You know, you have to read the room, but it's always okay to reach out and say, hey, because you, you, you may not be at the top of their, their mind in that moment, but, you know, place the thought there. Let them go 24 hours and think about, I, I love working with her. I love working with him. And, you know, you, you never know where it's going to lead. Did Andy and, and, and all the cast members socialize? I love those stories. You know, Tim and Harvey socialized in, uh, in, in, uh, back in the Carol Burnett show. I just wonder if they were social outside the work environment. Uh, well, my dad and Andy were close friends, and they talked, they talked to, to each other all the way to the end of their days. But the Andy Griffith show, was they worked such long hours on that show, they didn't really have much time to socialize. Mm. So it was all done on the set, whatever. Socializing was mostly done there. But my dad did socialize with Tim Conway quite a bit. Those mm -hmm. two together would have been too yeah. much to watch. He's the thread for this show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and Tim, Tim was such a, a hilarious... My dad was very shy, and Tim was not. <laughs> Uh, and Tim would just improvise. They had these Christmas parties every year at Tim's house and dad would go and I was, I would go sometimes. And it was just amazing that Tim would just, just improvise and entertain everybody. And my dad would just sit there and laugh at Tim and just be amazed. And it was really interesting to me that when, when Tim and dad started making movies together, my dad actually became straight man for Tim Conway. Wow. Yeah. That's a challenge. <laughs> You're Karen, also a playwright. Tell us about Roger and Betsy. Well, um, I wrote, um, that was actually a short film, a oh. short, I mean, a short play, which is going to become a film. Oh. And um, yeah, I've written a few plays. I wrote a play, a farce called But We Open Tonight, which is, uh, which is based on the characters of Tallulah Bankhead and uh, John Barrymore. And it's sort of, sort of fictitious you know, situation where they all end up right in this. Dates crazy. from Hell, the musical. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a musical. <laughs> <laughs> the musical. Wow. Yeah. So before we close, what can you tell us about, you know, not all of us get a chance to so, you know, deeply research our own parents. What have you learned right. about your dad along the way through all this? Well, um, I think uh, I, I didn't really learn much that I didn't already know, but I learned, I learned just little brief insights into him that um, just from interviewing the people. So I would say interview people who knew your parents, know your parents or knew your parents, even if you're not, don't have a famous parent, you always know that this funny thing is that when I started interviewing people and then I 
I started kind of running out of people. And I thought, wait a minute, my dad had conversations with my own friends. That's right. And so I started interviewing my friends and they told me the best stories of all. <laughs> you know, I did a one person show at the beginning of my career, which is about that exact topic. It was called It's really? Me, Dad. And the inciting incident was I went to my father's funeral and listened to the testimony of all these people I didn't know that told these wonderful, some wonderful, some not so wonderful stories about my father. And I was I had I was very conflicted about it. I was happy to hear them talk about it. But I was also I felt like an outsider that didn't know as much about my dad as I should have. So I said I would never allow that to happen to my children. And I had two sons at the time. So I went home. And I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a legal pad. I'm going to write everything about my life. And I'm going to set up a camera in my den. And I'm going to talk to the camera and tell my children all the good and the bad divorce and alcoholism and all kinds of stuff. And I'm going to put it in a safe deposit box. They were like eight and six at the time. And when they're old enough, they can watch this, but they'll know everything about me. There'll be no surprises. They've never watched. They have no interest. They, yeah. <laughs> no. That is fantastic. Well, what happened was I began to share my idea with my friends and said, you've got to put that on the stage. People will relate to that so much. So, and I did that show, public television. Television bought it and they aired it on Father's Day seven years in a row. And wow. it was just about my relationship with sons and being honest with your sons. And Wheezy was involved in that as well. So, I mean, I, that whole, um, uh, that whole uh, desire to know about your father and the surprise and conflict of not knowing everything that you wish you knew, sort of the same. That is wonderful, mm-hmm. Fritz. That is amazing yeah. that you did that. Yeah, it's wow. a great piece of work. And that was his first one-man play. He's done several since then. He's just, he's, you know, when you go beyond stand-up into, you know, a performance piece, it's a it's a whole different level. You have to make people laugh and cry, right, Karen? Yeah, well, I want to see your show. I have a VHS, but nobody has a VHS machine. But I'll send you a copy if you, anybody can make a transfer. Yeah, I, I can digitize that, yeah. that for you, Oh, Chris. you could, okay, good. Yeah. The only thing about one-man shows is the cast parties are really boring. <laughs> You just end up talking to yourself quite a bit. There you go. <laughs> well, we have just really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Let us know how people can find you online. KarenKnotts.com. It's that simple. <laughs> Are you in the midst of a tour, going to start a tour? Are you going to take it out and be more active on the road now that the pandemic is winding down? Well, the pa- the uh, shows are a little bit slow coming back, but I have performed three shows in West Virginia, and then I have one booked in July, July 29th, and then I have four or five shows booked in October. So if you just, yeah, just go to that page and I will start updating that page because I don't have all the new bookings on there yet, but I'm going to update Will you do anything local? Uh, LA I will local eventually. For- I will. I don't have anything right now, but I have a new show that I'm starting. It's called Not So Fast. What I'm doing with a partner, Rick Roberts, who is a very funny stand-up comedian. And he also does a Barney Fife impression. Oh, great. So we're going to be doing sketches and improv and music and a lot of fun stuff. Too. Will you build that into a show and take it on the road as well? Yeah. We're gonna, nice. We have our opening. Our debut is going to be uh, August um, yeah, August 29th, I think it is, in Delhart, Texas. All right. Excellent. Good for you. 
All right. Well, here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us on social media then post another cute pic of your doggy we know he's just the cutest you can sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com and we want to thank our guests karen knotts and vicki lawrence our team includes dina friedman john maddox sharon bellio bill Filipiak, thomas hubble mason brown and you our theme music is by me and john maddox i am louise palanker here with fritz coleman and we will see you along the media path Just such a...